do this. Hello, lovely audience. I am Sarah Hoff. I am agnostic. And I'm Laura Barkley, a Baptist minister, and we are Bible Bitches, a podcast where we riff on all things biblical, feminist, and pop culture. And today we're starting with a fun fact. And Sarah, I got the fun fact today, and that's on New Year's Eve for Y2K. I was watching Dracula 2000 in the movie theater uh, with high school friends before meeting my parents at a late night Shoney's breakfast buffet. <laughs> Shoney's? Is that because you love a powdered egg? <laughs> I love a lot of things that are not good for me, Sarah, and all of them are on the Shoney's Buffet. Uh, and, and, you like uh, that sneezed on bacon? Mmm, delish. Thank God for the uh, sneeze guard, am I right? That's not a thing that holds people back. No, it's not. They'll just get up in there. That's what I know. Uh, and but it's really good for your immune system. It's true. It, like you, it really just helps you gird your loins for whatever <laughs> plague comes next. So yeah. that's we're ready. You will not become a zombie in the next apocalypse for sure. Correct. Um, and I have to tell you, Sarah, that uh, in Dracula 2000, which starred Gerard Butler as Dracula. Yes, Gerard Butler as Dracula, the very same one from 300, yes, posited, uh, it posited that Judas Iscariot uh, was cursed to become a vampire. Uh, that's very strange and also worth a watch because again, Gerard Butler was Dracula. Uh, just, yeah, it's everything you think it is. <laughs> yeah, did they cast him because he was a bit long in the tooth? Oh, good. Hair. Hair, it hurts. What? That was a, that. You know what? That was a very worthy pun. Was it? Okay, this is a pivotal moment in my life, and I'm gonna go ahead and stand by it. Yes, yes, it was. You know what? I'm not sure that I agree with you, but I like that you're standing up for yourself, and I'm all about that. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> Okay, you guys, today's topic is Judas, the original. Judas, 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 Judas. <laughs> Short and dirty is that he was one of the 12 main disciples. I mean, were there other disciples besides the 12? Uh, there were, there were followers of Jesus, right? Uh, and. Did they get disciple status? Were they in the you know, disciple, apostle, those things are kind of like interchangeable because later on Paul gets apostle and he wasn't even there for Jesus' life. Okay, so he's one of the 12 that Jesus, that Jesus chooses to follow him and helps preach and teach around the, I don't know, the area where they nomadically go. Yeah, first century Palestine. First century Palestine. Um, and in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all say that Jesus was betrayed by Judas and identified him with a kiss in order to have the officials, um, the Roman officials, arrest the right person, arrest Jesus. Yes, right. And so basically Judas goes away, gets the officials, and they're, he's like, hey, I'm going to identify him with a kiss. So he comes back into Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is hang, hanging out. And he's like, hey, Jesus, I'm going to give you a quick kiss. 
And then the officials are all like, boom, I got you. And I believe that the great philosopher Wikipedia condenses this very well. The Gospel of Mark, the earliest gospel, gives no motive for Judas's betrayal, but does present Jesus predicting it in advance at the Last Supper, an event also described in all the later gospels. The Gospel of Matthew 26.15 states that Judas committed the betrayal in exchange for 30 pieces of silver. The Gospel of Luke 22.3 and the Gospel of John 13.27 instead suggest that he was possessed by Satan. So here's the thing, especially, like, especially in John, but there is, like, an overarching narrative, obviously, of Judas being the betrayer, and in more than one gospel of Judas being, like, identified by Jesus to be that betrayer. And so I'd like to just, like, stop on this for a second. So, you know, all the four gospels, are written with a different theme or message in mind. And especially John, like I can't decide if John hates Judas or wants to write him as like a weirdly, I don't know, like more sympathetic character because of this demon possession thing. It's such a weird deal. Like Jesus, or I'm sorry, not Jesus. Judas is all just like hanging out. He's just being a disciple. And then Jesus announces that one of the disciples will betray him. And like, this this sort of like is written as it comes across as Jesus predicting the situation or predicting this, but then it isn't until he, you know, hands Judas this piece of bread, but then a demon or like Satan enters into Judas and like compels Judas to be this betrayer. And Jesus even then like eggs him on. He's like do quickly what you must do. And so it's kind of like Jesus is weirdly like creating a situation in which this has to happen. And like, I can't really get on board with Judas being like, it just kind of sounds like Judas is a pawn. And I mean, I don't know. Did you ever read Ficciones by Borges? No, I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong, but in it, he, um, he's like a you know an essayist and poet and that kind of thing and in one of his essays which is like uh i forget what it's called like three stories of judas or something like that and i read it when i was young i think this was actually one of the stories that made me start like moving away from like the quote-unquote christian path because it's called like the three narratives of judas or something like that and in one of them he does posit this theory that isn't that now I know is not new to him that Judas is the old is the like the actual sacrifice here because not only does he give up his current life he gives up his afterlife too regardless of what that looks like I mean perhaps he's perhaps he's going into you know hell but it also is just that he's giving up his like worldly reputation he's giving up his legacy so I think in order to buy that, okay, so I, I'm going to give the counterpoint on that, Sarah. I think John was the latest gospel written. It was written much later than the others. And I, I believe that by the time John's gospel was being written, there, were, there was a lot of lore and kind of theology and tradition that had been added on. So in the, you know, kind of Mark is the earliest, right? And then we have Matthew and Luke a little bit later than that that are using Mark as a source. And then we have John written after that, where 
Um, it ha John has kind of a bunch of John's own sources. John is thought to have been written in its own community, right? Some overlap with the other ones, but it is not considered a synoptic gospel, i.e. there's not a lot of overlap between Mark, Matthew, and Luke, which are considered the synoptic gospels. Remind me again, John is first century after, like first... My understanding is that Mark is somewhere between like, what, 50 and 60 AD uh, or, or CE. Um, and then uh, Matthew and Luke are pretty concurrent, what, like 75, 80, somewhere in there, CE, AD. And then John is like, a like 100 or more years after. Like it, it's a little bit later. And just for our audience, I remember that AD is like after the death of Christ. And BC is before Christ, whereas BCE is before Common Era, CE is Common Era. And those basically are kind of the secular nomenclature for before Christ after. Uh, yeah. And AD, Ando Domini, which is uh, Latin for after Christ, yeah. uh, after death. Um, so, so I think John, in terms of the timeline, John's, John's gospel is going through some, some stuff because it's not written until far later and there's some trauma that has, that takes place in that community. So I don't give as much historical credence to what it says about Judas. So in terms of what's actually going on between Jesus and Judas, if I'm looking for the historical implications, I'm going to go to Mark first and then I'm going to go to Matthew and Luke. Um, John's going to be the last one I go to. So I don't know that Judas knows anything. I also don't buy into this kind of concept of sacrificial atonement where Jesus thinks Jesus has to sacrifice Jesus' self and that Judas thinks Jesus has to sacrifice Jesus' self. Ergo, Judas has to sacrifice himself uh, both in this life and the next life. I think Judas is just a greedy son of a bitch who uh, turns on his friend. So um, that's kind of where I'm at. So wait, what do you think? So like explain what you do think if not sacrificial atonement. I don't believe that Jesus had to die. I believe in order for, you know, humankind to be forgiven. I think that Jesus embodied the love of God in that Jesus fought for justice and love on earth. And that because things were so volatile and he was actually fighting for justice and love, the outcome ended up being death. And Jesus, Jesus fought for, for justice and love unto death. And just like you know, Martin Luther King, right? Just like we're kind of talking about, you know, that, that, can, that cycle continues to happen even until, uh, even in modern day. And so I don't think Jesus, Jesus, any sort of indication that Jesus gives that Jesus knows he's going to die, I think has far more to do with threats, right? That happen around Jesus where he thinks his life is on the line where, okay, maybe I might die because people are threatening my life or, uh, the powers that be, i.e. Rome and the local government that con is conspiring with Rome is going to end me because I'm for social justice and the poor. So I, I, like, I, I get, I get what you're saying, but I also think that it, uh, this is like the, the, the story isn't that Jesus had an option. I mean, the story is that Jesus could have had an option potentially, but that Jesus chose to do this. And if, and as, as I'm reading this, because I'm not reading it now with the lens of that 
it has to like be something that I believe or fit into necessarily like a theology. If I'm just reading it as a story, then the story is that whoever the author is and if Jesus is like going with God's will, then like God is the ultimate author of this, that yes, Jesus did have to die. Like that was the story. And that was what the author wanted to tell. Like that's the story that the author wanted to tell. Regardless of what Jesus could have or could not have done, what Jesus did do is then like what the story is. And so I I like I, I agree, like substitutionary atonement problematic but at the same time how are you how do you reconcile the story with the with the possibilities of interpretation do you see what i'm does that make sense does that question make sense uh well i think any story has a lot of opportunities for uh interpretation and i think but i think uh the i think that the story that you're positing with judas being a puppet in this says that God has to be the ultimate actor in this story and that God is, God is this kind of angry substitutionary atonement God, which I, which I think is nonsensical whenever, because God doesn't need to sacrifice God's own son in order to appease God's own anger. That's completely insane. So that's why I don't buy it. Do you believe in free will? Sure. I'm not sure that I do. Whoa. Agnostic Sarah doesn't believe in free will? Hold up. Okay. So, like, how... Shocking revelations! How are we defining free will? Because if free will is, like, if I... Okay, so I define free will as the ability to choose. Like, almost in a, like, tabula rasa kind of way at each moment to choose. But that's not something that you can do. We are bound to our, we're bound to things that we have no control over. We're bound to um, the situation we were born into. We were bound to how we grew up. We were bound to all of these different things. We were bound to the knowledge that we came across as we were growing up, which not aren't, isn't necessarily a part. I mean, like it's part of how we grew up, but it isn't necessarily like what we were born into, like all these kind of different factors, you know, we're bound to things that just happen to us. Like, Maybe I get, you know, I was a depressed and still am a de- like a depressed person. Like maybe I, you know, maybe something happened to me as a child that I was, re- that I repressed. Maybe I just was a lonely cl- kid and that's maybe depressed now. And like, I, I can't say that my actions now are free from how I grew up. Well, sure. Because we're all products of our environment. I mean, but that's still not to say that God is orchestrating us like puppets. I don't believe that. I mean, I think everyone is affected by their environment. Sure. We're all affected by our circumstance, but we have ultimate choice within the environment that we're born into. Any creature, you know, has that with what we're born into to make a free choice. Like, I would almost want to know if someone's like the ultimate Darwinian. Like, do they think we have free choice or do they think that we're completely enslaved to our own instincts? I think that we're like a mix of the two that based on, based on our environmental parameters, we tend to have tendencies, right? But we also have a prefrontal cortex that allows us to make higher functioning decisions. So it's somewhat of a mix between the two. 
but, but that's, that's like called adapt that's called evolutionary adaptation yeah which could also be called free will so and, but like the free will again is like it's not it's not a clean cut free will it's a um biological choice to stay alive and so you adapt to your surroundings let's let's bring it back because i want to see how this relates to judas free will unfree not free will uh let's let's bring it back to judas and then let's revisit the free will issue later okay love it okay so like can we just agree on like a hung jury um <laughs> we are we're we're i'm undecided per the huge <laughs> <laughs> And Laura like actually knows what she wants. She gets it. That's why that's why Laura is like owns a house and is married and I'm just dicking around in Los Angeles. Anyway. I'm, just, I'm a sassy lady walking down the street with my hand on the purse. <laughs> and then there's like a screenshot of you just like smiling. I love it. And like partly jumping in the air to like high five someone else. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. I get it. I get that. Anyhow. So we're talking about Judas. I don't know if you remember that. And uh, Laura and I are divided on what free will is. <laughs> according to Matthew 27. According, according to Matthew 27, 1 through 10. After learning that Jesus was to be crucified, Judas attempted to return the money. He Okay, so back up. Judas is the finance guy as in the disciple group. He is considered to be a bit of a penny pincher. We and we're gonna get into like what that ends up be like. It becomes this whole like stupid cultural thing, which is frustrating. But he just as a person, he's just a banker. He's just being a banker. What 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 are they doing? They're worried about fiscal responsibility. I get it. Anyways, in Matthew, Judas attempts to return the money that he's been paid for his betrayal to the chief priest and commits suicide by hanging. So that is supposed to be a statement of his like ultimate guilt, right? Like he is so ashamed of what he did that he against his like reputation as the banker, as the person worried about the purse strings, he does this thing that is like totally against that by giving the money back and he commits suicide by hanging. The priests then use this money to buy a field to, that they bury strangers in, which is called the field of blood because it was actually bought with blood money. And it's like kind of gross. I mean, like for me, it's kind of awesome because it's disgusting and very visceral and you can understand it. He, Apostle Peter states in Acts one eighteen that Judas uses the money to buy the field himself and then he fell headlong and bursts asunder in the mist, and all his bowels gushes out. His place among the Twelve Apostles was later filled by Matthias. So this probably means that uh, Judas hung himself and rotted, and he rotted to the point where his intestines fell out. Uh, So here's where it gets interesting. If your theology is such that Jesus has to die in order that humanity is redeemed, i.e. substitutionary atonement, then Judas has to betray Jesus in order for Jesus to die and be resurrected, right? Like we were talking about before. In fact, early Gnostic Christians who prized secret knowledge and were considered heretical elevated Judas for killing Jesus in order to bring about salvation for all. Yikes. Y'all. Gnosticism. Obviously, I'm anti-Gnosticism because I'm <laughs> agnostic. Like, 
like nobody would care about narcissism in this context, except for that in 1978, an old codex was found in the middle of Egypt by like some random people. In fact, from what I read, they were described as peasants, but can people be called peasants in 1978? I don't. Apparently, I think they're, I think they're, Amateur archaeologist heroes. That's right. So amateur archaeologist what? Heroes. Anti-amateur yes. archaeologist heroes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. found this old codex. And it's from the third or fourth century. It's written in Coptic. And it contains a book called the Gospel of Judas. So what? Um, the codex is called the Codex, and I'm gonna absolutely butcher this. It's T C H-A-C-O-S. Chacos? Sarah, is it Chacos? The sandal Chacos? Is this where the sandal came from? Pretty sure it is. Chacos, y'all. And they're so comfy, and they're a sandal, and you can hike in them. They have good arch support. They dry easily. Yeah, they do. I don't have a pair. I don't like them. (laughs) She does not like them. They're not fashionable, but they are comfortable. (laughs) (laughs) They are. They are both of those things. (laughs) I'm I'm essentially too vain to wear them. I am not. <laughs> I'll wear them and I'll be like, I'm so comfy. I don't yeah, care. I feel like in style where you live. If I wore them out here in LA, people would be like, gross, you can't come in here. <laughs> That's only like half of a joke because seriously. it's actually not a joke. That's <laughs> you can't wear sandals in a like in a lot of bars around here. <laughs> Chacos, Codex Chacos. We're talking about the Codex Chacos. Was not preserved so well, as it turns out. I don't know if you know this, but just being buried in sand for centuries upon centuries, not so good. And then the people who took hold of it didn't really like maintain it so well. Um, That's not that's not the kind of thing that a layperson just knows how to do. Anyways, a lot of text ends up missing. National Geographic, yeah, the magazine, comes in and spends a ton of money trying to restore it and then promoting it. And they do this like cool documentary about it. I did not watch it. I'm sorry, I did not have time. But long story short, the book of Judas gets restored and ends up making Judas seem like this kind of weird anti-hero. It makes Judas, like the story portrays Jesus as kind of a dick, like he's making jokes, but at the expense of others, he's kind of like setting other people up to look like fools. And, and Judas is also portrayed as this kind of like, yeah, like an anti-hero. And, and to be fair, like Gnostics have like a, it, it is very Gnostic insofar as that like Gnostics have this like clear point of view that they are trying to present. And one of the points of view is that Judas was a hero in his own right. And actually, like, who was it? Elaine Pagel, Elaine Pagels, who is a, like, modern Gnostic theologian, states that, and this has been part of the reading, that um, she's, like, I'm paraphrasing, that, like, there's no way that Judas didn't go to heaven. That's neither here nor there. Okay, let's circle back to that, because I want us to keep on topic, but I have a lot of thoughts towards the end. Okay, but we have to be very careful, because elevating Judas in this story it removed Jesus's autonomy in the story um, because it's basically saying that Judas had all the choice in this and Jesus did not. Um, and it also fueled uh, anti-Semitism by blaming everything on Judas and Caiaphas. 
um, and saying like, look, it's the Jews fault. But here's the thing, because again, uh, one thing that we did not make clear is that this is written much later. So I know we said third or fourth century. This is several centuries after the other gospels are written. So by now, several things have happened. Uh, not only uh, the followers of Jesus are not just a cult of Judaism anymore. They have split and now it's mostly Gentiles uh, or non-Jews that are following and they are now Christians, right? And in the third or fourth century, you've got, uh, you've got it split from uh, Christians or people in this Jesus Jewish cult being persecuted at the hands of Rome to being now the state religion of Rome. So now they're kind of in charge which is a totally different dynamic. And they're not Jewish at all anymore. They're Gentiles. So now it's really easy to throw Jews under the bus. But here's the thing is Jesus and the rest of the apostles are also Jews. So yeah. it's very dangerous to kind of ride this anti-Semitic line and, and throw Jew Judas and Caiaphas under the bus by saying that it's purely because of their Judaism, because Jesus and all of the rest of the disciples and their followers at the time are Jews. So a couple of things. Um... Did you have other thoughts? Because I didn't, I don't want to. I do, but I want to wait until we circle back. So. Okay, cool. In the story that I'm reading, Jesus has all of the autonomy. Jesus is calling all of the shots. He's the one who's like showing the others who is in like sort of not just predicting, but also dictating who the betrayer is. And he like, he knows it's not like, it's not like he if, if free will exists, he has full control over each of these situations. I didn't read any of this as removing Jesus' autonomy. It's more like, are we removing Judas's autonomy? Okay, so I see that you're saying that. But I also think that, uh, okay, I'm just going to let all my feels out right now, Sarah. I'm going to do it. I'm, gonna, yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to unleash them. Yes. Uh, I think Gnosticism is bullshit. Um, and here's why. Um, because I think there's a whole lot of levels to, to Gnosticism. Okay. And I think it's just kind of, uh, there's a lot of sort of like influence from like kind of Greek and Roman thought here because, okay, so we've got that there's all these different levels, right? There's the earthly level, there's, um, there's kind of the, the divine level. And if you follow Gnostic thought out, you basic, they basically think that Jesus became a hundred percent human when Jesus died, um, because a God could not die on a cross. That's not possible. So that would mean that anything Jesus suffered, they, they would think that anything Jesus suffered could only be human because a divine being could not be touched. I don't like that because I think it means that I think it means that you cannot have an embodied God. You can't have a God that could possibly understand anything that humans are going through. So Gnostics would have a very clear separation between human and divine. They would say that, you know, the, the second Jesus started being maimed and was in the court being judged by uh, the higher ups in the synagogue, a temple, as well as the Roman, you know, Roman court that, he'd kind of left his body and he was already in heaven. And that's useless to me. It's that, that kind of God is completely useless to me. And so I don't have a need for that kind of God. <laughs> so I want a God that's completely embodied, that understands our suffering, that understands the, the trials and travails that we go through. 
And I think, you know, they also prize knowledge. And so that would mean that they would want to think that Judas had a sense of knowledge for the kind of betrayal that Judas had to do, that Judas had to betray Jesus in order that Jesus could fulfill some sort of role. But that kind of foreknowledge also says that there's absolutely no free will. Everybody's just pl- just playing a role. We're all puppets in some sort of divine play, which is bullshit. That's bullshit. I don't want to believe in that kind of God. If that's the kind of God we're all following, then uh, sign me out. This is why I think that Gnosticism is, is bullshit. And I think it's, it was already seen as a heresy by, and I don't use that word lightly, by the way, but was seen as a heresy by uh, the time of Council of Nicaea. And none of these books made it because of that reason. And also some of them were written like concurrently and after. So how much legitimacy do they really have? Because they don't have a whole lot of firsthand knowledge of Jesus or the immediate communities around them. And so if we're talking about prizing knowledge and the divine order, they're not talking about justice. They're also, they're also saying that male is above female, because if we're talking about orders, we're saying males above female, divine is above human because they're following the Greek ideology and I'm not sexist. So I tend to think that everything's equal. I think that's bullshit. So I kind of throw all of that out and I think Gnosticism is bullshit because of it. And I think, I think people in the 21st century, if they knew what Gnosticism was, would throw it out. So, okay. How do I say this? Like, I'm not, I'm not like, I don't give a shit about Gnosticism. I'm totally agnostic. I'm reading this stuff as like, as stories. Here's my question. Like, let's say Gnosticism has been taken seriously. Um, In the 21st century or... Yeah, let's just say that Gnosticism has been taken seriously in the 21st century. And if it has been, if it's been like, let's imagine that it's part of the canon, then it would also be subject to the like many iterations of interpretation that the rest of the canon would have been subject to, right? And so an interpretation of it as X, which is what those fathers imagined it to be, and then comparing it to a modern, your modern interpretation of the biblical texts as they are, are like comparing apples and oranges. If we were going to compare like the Council of Nicaea, what their interpretation of the Bible was to the um, Gnostic interpretation of this like fourth or fifth century text, that's a closer comparison than what we are talking about versus what they were talking about, right? And so if we're going to get into like a a discussion about the books that were canonized, I I don't know that like I don't know that it it necessarily matters. Like it would if it had been canonized, it would have, yes, been dissonant. We've read a lot, of, we've like talked about a lot of dissonant texts. Um, and like minor texts and and it still comes back to these like modern interpretations and so I don't I just like mm, I don't know I guess my problem is that like if if the New Testament if the point of the New Testament is to talk mostly about Jesus Christ right the figure of Jesus Christ the the problem that I have with adding in any sort of you know texts from centuries after is that like let's pretend that social media didn't exist in the 21st century okay and i was just now gonna write a biography of jfk having only 
having no sense of technology, the TV doesn't exist, radio doesn't exist. I've just got hearsay basically about what JFK, right? So what is that? Like he died, he died in the sixties. So we're saying, I, I, we're talking now what, 60 years after roughly the death of mm -hmm. the death of uh, JFK. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's roughly like Matthew and Luke's timing of writing about, uh, you know, Jesus. Right. So Mark would be, you know, 10, 15 years before that. Would I want someone to write a biography of me that lived 200 years after me or write about me that lived 200 years after me that didn't have social media, didn't have access to anything? Like, what do they have to say about my life? What, what the gospel of Judas, my, here's what I'm positing, Sarah, is that the gospel of Judas has far more to say about the community that wrote it than anything about Judas or Jesus. So because it was written so far after... I, I, I think it has far more to say. It, it, it Does it have merit for study? Absolutely. But I think we're talking about apples and oranges here. It, I mean, already Matthew, Mark, Luke, you know, writing about Jesus would be like me writing about JFK if the internet and uh, the printing press didn't exist or TV, right? So that's already a, a goodly amount of time that has passed um, on oral tradition. Now take several hundred years and written in a different geographic location. So I think we're really talking here about the community with which it was written in. It gives us a whole lot more depth about that than it does really about the figure it was written about, you know, Judas or Jesus. Right. Okay. Yes. I'm going to, I'm going to heartily agree with you on that point. So the argument that I hear you saying is that, the crux of your theology rests on these four Gospels, right? You know what? Uh, ish. I would say that the crux of my theology rests on the Gospels. It actually does rest somewhat on tradition. It rests on my own personal experience. Um, right. You know. But as far as, like, the biblical text goes. Yeah, sure. I would say that a lot of what I believe today, like a, like a good, you know, a good fourth or third of what I think you know, has to do somewhat with what the Gospels say. I guess what I'm getting at is that your argument is true, but it also doesn't necessarily negate what, I, what I'm hypothesizing. Because, yeah, like, there, like, I hear what you're saying, and that makes a lot of sense to me, because you don't want somebody who is, you know, hundreds of years down the line writing about something that they, like, essentially don't know about, right? But in the Bible, we have so many texts. We have an entire testament of the Bible that is written outside of the Jesus narrative and also problematic, like, mm, are we sure about like exactly when those texts were written and how in line they were with the period that they were supposed to be about? And so... If it, is, if it is possible that we want to hinge a theology on these four Gospels, that's fine. What is the purpose of the other texts if not to illuminate those four Gospels? And if the purpose is to illuminate those four Gospels, then would it not be a terrible idea to re-examine 
the other texts that are being left out in light of like modern society because the Council of Nicaea had very specific points of view that aren't necessarily in play anymore. And we've uncovered other documents that could be, you know, like there are documents in the Bible that are thousands of years before the time of Jesus. What if we took those out and put thousands of years after the time of Jesus and that gave us enlightenment about a different time in relation to the time of Jesus that was more... I I would posit that instead of that, I think that the Bible is a snapshot of what people thought about God or trying to approach God at a a very specific point in time, um, which is very important and that we need to keep it as is. But also I think that there is, I believe personally, that there is continual revelation, which means that just, you know, people could write something like the, the works of Martin Luther King or whatever in this day and age, and it could be incredibly important and divinely inspired. And but that's not how we're setting them up. I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I think that the way that I have posited and the way that I have talked about the Bible to other people is such that, that it is not a, it is not an untouchable document in that it cannot, it, it, it can be critiqued, it can be talked about, it can be approached. My issue is that we don't add or take away from it, but we do talk about what are, what are, the, what are the documents? Because I think, again, what you're talking about is documents that were added several centuries later, Do- documents that were written several centuries later after these documents. Okay, well, great, let's talk about them, let's study them. D- yeah. Judas was written several centuries after these documents. But we do, but we do add or take away from them because we don't necessarily add or take away from the words, but we do add or take away from the meaning of those words. We add or take away from the interpretation of anything. So why don't you, why don't we, why don't we sit here and talk about how we add or take away from Shakespeare, how we add or take away from whatever we leave it as it is, but we, we interpret. But the, the interpretations of these, these other books is less impactful because these other books don't have the same. It doesn't matter. We still aren't adding to it. We still, I can't, I can't still like take King Lear and be like, you know what? It needs another chapter. Like we don't, we don't do that kind of stuff. Yeah. But like legislation isn't being passed on King Lear. Legislation is being passed on interpretations of the Bible. Okay. Then, then what you're talking about is talk is addressing the first amendment of the constitution, which I would completely agree with, but that doesn't mean going to the source material and saying, we need to completely change what's in the Bible. That means we need to talk about how we interpret that. We need to completely change what's in the Bible. What I'm saying is that like it, like it's been thousands of years. Like maybe it's time. Maybe we should not base our constitution on what's in a 2000 year old document because there are some things that are not in there that our society has evolved in. And we need to figure out what that means. But But we we live in a society that where there's separation of church and state. And that is very clearly indicated in the first amendment. That is, that is like one piece of the issue. Another piece of the issue is that there is such a, sacredness to this particular text but the text itself is so 
is so malleable. It is so constantly reinterpreted. It is so, it's just like putty. And so like, how is it sacred if, it's not sacred if people like adhere to it without question. It's also not sacred if people use it to their own gain. I don't, I, and like. Can I, can I counter? I feel like there's a, I feel like you're throwing a lot of darts at a dartboard. One is that it needs to, there needs to be more books added. One is that we need to edit it because it has something to do with the government. And the other one is that it isn't sacred. So like, what would you you say your primary thesis is currently? My primary thesis is that, that it isn't necessarily as, as holy as people think it is. If it's, so if it's so holy that it is then like being, and, and this is what people are currently saying that it's so holy that it um, affects legislature, that it, you know, provides this moral compass, that it's so holy that it can't be re-examined within the context of a canon, even though there are other books that were chosen to not be a part of it, even though they could have been, if it's so holy that, you know, but, but then at the same time, there's a dissonance where, like, it's okay to sort of like pick and choose what is comfortable for a specific religious group at a specific time within history. Like I'm, I'm confused as to the consistency of it. I think I would posit that the issue is not that we need to be adding or taking away from a book that was finalized 1700 years ago. I would say that the argument is far more about uh, that there are inconsistencies in said document uh, in, in the Bible and that the Bible is a very human document that is about a bunch of different people who wrote it talking about God and that holy, I would argue that holy means in something entirely different than we, than we say it is that holy is, uh, people trying to approach something bigger than themselves. And I, I think that all, I think that those books do that. I think that some of the books that didn't make it in do that. I think that a lot, that sometimes speeches and, you know, things that are written nowadays do that. I don't, I don't think that what the argument needs to be is the book needs to change or that we need to um, add things to it or take away from it because I'm, I, I have to say I'm really big into historical continuity. Like let's keep it as it is and let's, critique the shit out of it and say that like this thing should not be legislated we need to have separation of church and state because i call myself a christian and i am pro-choice and pro-lgbt and i do not want anything that someone else might say about the bible taken taken into some sort of context and legislated um we also need to be asking questions about you know any sort of gospels we might dig up from 200 300 400 500 years after jesus death to ask questions of it. Do I think that the gospel of Judas has powerful things to say? Yes, about a particular community. Do I think it has any particular powerful things to say about Jesus or Judas? Not not particularly, no. But it could have powerful things to say in general. Do I think that Judas is an asshole? Yes, I do. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna lay it there. I think you stabbed your friend in the back and Sometimes that happens. Sometimes it happens. And I I honestly think the point of this part of the story with Judas is that he stabbed his friend in the back for money and power. 
And that happens. That is a real thing that happens in the 21st century. People will stab people in the back for money and power. I, I find relevancy in the story of Judas just as it is. And a cautionary tale. I think that, I love this. I think that um, Laura and I just came to our first stalemate. Judas, Did we? Judas is Judas is creating division even now. Look at you, Judas. Just creating division. Judas. Being a Judas goat. <laughs> I still hate you, and Sarah still finds some redeeming qualities in you. Look at that. Oh, I do. Mostly because, um, like, I feel like that was one of the first things that, like, I somehow stumbled upon in a time when I was already, like, starting to question. And so it just really, like, propelled me. Mm-hmm. And, um... So I have like, I have like a very soft spot, like that question that I'm, and again, it might be Borgesi or Borghese. I'm not really sure. Um, Are you a Gryffindor? I'm a Gryffindor. No, remember I was a Slytherin. Oh, okay. That makes total sense. Of course you would love Judas. Oh, oh. Oh, I hate Judas. He's not loyal. He's not brave. He's funny. (laughs) Anyway. I feel like we've gone way over and it's time for us to wrap up. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I guess we better do shout out. So if you want to tweet at us, find us at Bible Bitches. And you can find us on Facebook on our fan page at Bible Bitches. You can also find us at Engaged Gaze, G-A-Z-E. That's our host website. And they have all kinds of cool links towards us. And they're pretty cool. In general. (laughs) Indeed they are. Of course, you can also find us on SoundCloud and iTunes and Twitter. We would love... Did you forget about Twitter? No, it's not Twitter, isn't it? It's not Twitter. Twitter. It's Stitcher. My bad. Stitcher. You can find us on Stitcher. (laughs) (laughs) You can find us. Oh, it's, I like that. I was like, that's not right, but I don't know what is right. <laughs> I'm like, it's a Twitter and Stitch. I don't know. Feature. So, they all sound the same. There are too many T's. Anyways. Oh, so let's give a shout out to uh, at Yo Eves, who has been on tour and lets us sample her music, and it's fantastic. You Thanks, can hear Yo that Eve. on the internet. Yeah, she's great. You can find her on the tweets. Um, and then. Another person you can find on the tweets is at Aaron Doodles, who does all of our artwork. Uh, you should follow him because he's got funny stuff. And hey, why don't you be an honorary Bible bitch? Let's uh, let's have you donate to us on the Patreon. And you can find us at uh, patreon.com slash Bible Bitches Podcast, I think. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. And tosses some money uh, at your discretion per month, and you can get some really cool Bible bitches swag and support our work. All right. Give us five stars on iTunes. <laughs> Follow us on Twitter. Uh, give us five stars on anything you see that has star rankings. And uh, just shoot us general affirmations and questions. Okay. Bye, you guys. Bye. <laughs>